The text of this sermon is in 2 Timothy, the little epistle that we have been considering now for several weeks, and in the fourth chapter. I'd like for you to turn to that um, fourth chapter and just um, hold that, leave the Bible open there on your lap. And there are two other passages of Scripture that I want to refer to prior to um, getting to the text. One is in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and the other is in the 11th chapter of the, the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you want to turn to those passages and kind of mark the place or put your finger there, you can refer to, to those verses with me right quickly. So it will be 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then Hebrews 11, and 2 Corinthians 11. Give you time to find that. Giving multiple text creates havoc in uh, finding Scripture verses, doesn't it? An article appeared in the classified ad section of a Kansas City newspaper that had 15 words. It read like this, I will listen to you talk for 30 minutes without comment for $5. Now that seemed like a hoax when that article appeared in the classified section, but it really wasn't. In fact, the man who posted that ad in the classified section said that he received 15 to 20 calls a day, some of them as far away as the West Coast. There's so many people out there who are so lonely, they just want somebody to talk to. Ah, look at all these lonely people, the Beatles, wailed, and it's true. There is no anguish like the anguish of loneliness. Who are the lonely people? They're a serviceman who today is on the far side of the earth, away from his family. Lonely person is an inmate who goes to bed tonight in his cell in some prison somewhere, and he knows that he has nothing to look forward to tomorrow except another day just like today. As a teenager staring into a television set, trying to escape the pressures of the home, he's really not watching anything there. His parents have just gotten a divorce and he misses his dad and the way it used to be. Loneliness is a widow who goes home and sets a table for one she just buried her husband, her mate, of many years, a few years ago. Loneliness is a couple whose heart aches for a child they've loved and embraced and have lost. I heard a preacher tell that he was preaching in a conference, and after the, the conference he was talking to a sweet young couple, and they were talking about his family, and he told them that he had a 13-year-old daughter, and they said, 
our daughter would have been 13. And he said, I looked at them and asked, if it's not too hard, would you tell me how you lost her? And the woman said, when she was 11 years old, she was murdered. And he said, I looked over at the father. I could identify with him. And he said his face was long and sad. And he said, I asked the father, how did you get over the rage of that? How did you get over the anger? And he said, the father said, you know, Jesus took that anger from me. He said, he really did. Oh, he said, sometimes it comes back just sweeping in on me, the anger, the rage at the man who killed my child. But Jesus comes, he says, and takes that away. And then he said, but there's something that my wife and I having a difficult problem with. We live with this awful loneliness. Loneliness is a, it comes to missionaries, you know, God's people. I, I've talked to missionaries who've said that one of the most difficult things they have to deal with on the far side of the earth, when they're away from someone who has the common language and interest and age. He said, what we really have a problem with is this terrible loneliness. And so when I pray for missionaries, I always pray that God will assuage their loneliness and bring peace to their heart. And many an older couple who feels, who have been so active Many an older person who has been so active and now feels useless and unwanted and not needed, and that's a lonely feeling. There are so many lonely people who just want somebody to talk to. Now I want to read a passage of Scripture before I get to the text that, that describes loneliness. It's found in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and it's kind of surprising really when you, when you consider that that these are God's choicest people. And um, what is in the 11th chapter is this roll call of the faithful describing some of the great experiences of faith and the great experiences of the men and women of faith who have lived. Begin reading with me at verse 36. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put in death to death with a sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, while the uh, anti-religious and the anti-God were wearing their silks and their finery. These men and women went around in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves, and then kind of as an afterthought and holes in the ground. And if you have one of those little mark or read-through markers, you can just mark the side of there, or you can put in the, in the uh, uh, side column there, you can write the word loneliness there. And verse 38 says, and verse 39, And all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. In other words, they, didn't ever, they never lived to see the fulfillment of their dreams. And you can write loneliness across that. Lonely people. 
A.W. Tozer said, some of the greatest souls who have, that have ever lived are people who have been lonely. Now I want you to turn to that 1 Corinthian passage, or 2 Corinthian passage, and we'll just see the loneliness of this great apostle. Now, the sermon this morning is living with loneliness, if you haven't already uh, caught on. Verse 24 of chapter 11, five times I receive from the Jews 39 lashes. Who is there to bathe his wounds? A man can't take care of his back. Who was there to, to run, rub some salve in those wounds? And who was there to put the arm around the shoulder of this great man of God when scabs begin to develop on those wounds? And who are the people that are there in this man's life to tell him, Paul, we appreciate you and we love you and we're grateful for the work you've done. There were none. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. And if you want to know what loneliness is, you spend that loneliness in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. And then he went on to say, and I've carried the burden of the church on my heart night and day. And on the index there, in the flyleaf there, you write the word loneliness. But the most eloquent time that Paul ever spoke about loneliness is in this fourth chapter of 2 Timothy. And I suppose that each one of us can identify with loneliness. I, I mean, if we take off our church face, you know, and get honest with ourselves, we've all had a problem with loneliness. And I found that it doesn't make any difference how busy you are. You know, loneliness still comes. I've never been busier in my life, and I have these periods of melancholy and loneliness. And I've also found that it doesn't matter how many people are around you. You can be in a crowded dorm, or you can be in a busy section of town, and there are these feelings of loneliness. It doesn't matter uh, where you are or how many people are around you. You know, it doesn't do away with loneliness. Where was the Apostle Paul when he wrote these words? Well, he was in a Roman dungeon. And he was waiting execution. He was in Rome in a cell all by himself, all alone. A visitor, a, a traveler in Rome at that time wrote words like these. Descending the long stone staircase, one comes finally to the low arch chamber where the apostle lay bound waiting to be offered. And even on a hot summer day, the visitor can sense the constriction of the low ceiling and the dampness of the dungeon. It's a lonely place where the apostle writes. And he asked for a candle, and he asked for a pen, uh, uh, some kind of writing material, and he sits down there and he writes this passage, his most eloquent statement on loneliness. I suppose the greatest statement, the greatest treatment found anywhere in the Scripture. 
I want to deal first of all with when does loneliness come? When does loneliness strike? You might want to take a note or two. I know you never get lonely, but your friends might, and you might want to help them. You get lonely when you're distant from cherished friends. I want you to notice, and I'll not read for the sake of time. Notice verses 9 and 10 and 12 and 19 and 20. You get lonely when you're distant from cherished friends. The Apostle Paul said, winter's coming. Come before winter. Make every attempt to come. Fall is coming. And he's distant from his cherished friends. And he knows when wintertime comes, travel will be restricted. In fact, you just didn't travel in that ancient Mediterranean world in the wintertime. And he knew that he'd have to face the winter alone if Timothy didn't come quickly. And he didn't know whether he could face the winter alone or not. And there's nobody there to put their arm around him and encourage him. There's nobody there to say, thank you, Paul, for all you've done. He's all alone. All he says, Luke only is here. And Luke is a physician, and he's, he's an analytical mind. And, and, and a lot of times he's poring over his books. And so, so Paul is all alone, separated from his cherished friend. When you're separated from friends and loved ones, brings loneliness. Secondly, loneliness comes when our memories bring nostalgic reminders of the past. Would you look with me at verse 16? At my first defense no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. You know what he's doing? He's reliving the past. He's reliving yesterday. He's harking back. That's what loneliness does. It drives you back in your mind to what it was like yesterday. It brings you back to nostalgic reminders. It reminds you of when. And things, certain sounds and certain sights and certain smells keep knocking at your door saying, remember when, remember yesterday, remember what it was like. I heard a preacher say that one night he got a call, one of those calls late at night and the man said, I've heard about you. I know you're a minister. You do some counseling. Come over to my house quickly. I need some help. He said, I dressed in the middle of the night, traveled across town, came to a little apartment hovel. He said, the man met me at a door with a shotgun. He said, come in. He said, I did right away. I came right in. He said, we sat down at this kitchen table. He said, on the walls of this little old dingy hovel, this little old apartment, he had all these pictures of his boy. He said, with that shotgun there at his side, he began to talk in melancholy and nostalgic terms about his child, about the past. He said, for three hours, that's all we did was talk about his boy. And he said he'd bang the butt of that shotgun down on the floor at the end of his conversation and said, now what can you do to help me? And he said, I talked to him a little bit, shared a little scripture with him, said I didn't help him much. Two weeks later, he went out into piney woods of East Texas with that shotgun and blew his head off. Feelings of nostalgia came to me this last week. I know what it means. I know what this verse is saying. I had to make a trip to West Texas, and as I was driving along there alone, top the Cap Rock, I began to remember those times that I spent out there in West Texas. 
four of the greatest years of my life, my child born there. And I passed houses as I traveled through the little city where I pastored of people that I had known and loved and who died and were gone. And in the middle of the night, I was traveling across West Texas to go to my mother's house. And I remembered that long night I went hearing that my father had died to be with my mom. And I felt that choking in my throat. And I felt those tears come to my eyes for this nostalgia brought up these memories of the past. Loneliness. I couldn't wait till I got home. Third, Loneliness comes at certain times of the year, when certain times of the year occur. Now if you'll look at verses 9 and verse 21, he said, I want you to come before winter. Do everything you can to get here before winter. Oh, how I hate the wintertime alone. There's something dreary and dark and dismal about those kinds of days, isn't it? Sir Walter Scott wrote, no, November's leaf, is, November's sky is red, is dark and dull. November's leaf is red and searing. And I suppose that for Sir Walter Scott, November was a grim reminder of that burning pain of loneliness. Psychologists tell us that we live in kind of a cyclic function, a cyclic function. He says, they say certain, if something happens that's sad and, and heartbreaking at a certain time of the year, when that same date rolls around, we slump. We may not consciously, in fact, we may consciously avoid thinking about it, but our mind won't let us forget it. And I'm told that in San Francisco more people jump from the Golden Gate Bridge to take their own lives in fall and winter than spring and summer. And psychologists tell us that at Christmas time is the slumping time when certain times of the year come, come loneliness. Fourth, loneliness comes when we feel shelved and forgotten. I, I sense that in chapter 4, for the Apostle Paul has been this active and dynamic leader, and all of a sudden he's bound in some lonely dungeon in Rome, and he feels forgotten and useless, not important. Shelved. It's when the mate says, I no longer want to be married. I haven't loved you, and I'm leaving. It's when the boss says, you know, we no longer need you. You're going to be replaced. Here's your pink slip and severance pay. See you later, pal. It's when parents no longer have time for children. They're just too busy making a living. The children feel forsaken and neglected. It's when the young person says flatly and finally to his parents, for the last time, I'm leaving, I'm splitting, I'm cutting out, I'm gone. And the door slams and they're gone. Dale Galloway has a book called Rebuild Your Life. The introduction of that's kind of long. I want to read every word of it. Listen. Having lost all sense of time, I wandered aimlessly along an unknown beach in the state of Washington. I was sobbing uncontrollably every step of the way. As the sun was going down and darkness was closing in, I dropped down on the beach completely exhausted. 
For me, the sun had stopped shining. There was only darkness. Where in the hell are you, God? I shouted. Just a few brief months before, I would not have believed any true minister of God would think such words, let alone shout them angrily again and again at the top of his voice. Anyone who has been broken apart emotionally by some shattering experience, be it the death of a loved one, financial disaster, a one-away son or daughter, a physical setback, or the most shattering of all emotional crises, divorce, knows what I mean when I say there was a pain inside me that cut like a knife. At 31, my life was filled with, with success and all the things that I wanted most out of life. After two very successful pastorates, I was now pastor of one of the larger churches in our denomination in the state of Oregon. After I'd been there only 13 months, the church doubled in all areas and was starting to fulfill some of the dreams I had. I had a wife whom I loved and I'd been married to since our freshman year in college. If anyone had asked me just a few minutes earlier if I would have told them that we had a happy marriage. I had an eight-year-old son who was my pride and joy and a girl five years of age who had a way of wrapping her fingers around my heart. Then came that fateful day in October when my wife told me that she did not love me, that she had never loved me and that she was going to take the children and leave me forever, moving 2,500 miles away to her home in Ohio. She announced to me that I was the loser and that I would lose everything. I would lose the privilege of pastoring a church I loved. I would lose the wife whom I cherished and loved, and I would lose my two beautiful children. There would be nothing left for me. In the following weeks and days, I struggled desperately trying to save the sinking ship all to no avail. Before ending up on that beach at the bottom emotionally, I had gone four days without food, fasting and praying, calling on God to by some miracle save our marriage. Now as I lay on the beach, I knew the marriage was over. My life as a minister would soon be wrecked. My children would be taken many miles away from me. Never before had we had a divorce in my immediate family and I didn't see how my family could ever accept me again. Folks, that's her. Hurting. That's loneliness. That's being shelved and forgotten, and that's a lonely feeling, and that's the sad part of this sermon. I suppose that you've been there and you felt like you could die there, and so did the apostle, but he didn't. As a matter of fact, loneliness does a couple of things for people. I want to point those out, just two of them. Notice these right here in the text. First of all, loneliness makes us aware of the significance of others. Would you look at verse 11? And if you have any kind of understanding about the Scriptures, if, even if you've been here on Sunday night as we've made our way through the book of Acts and studied that book verse by verse, you remember the, the account of, of Mark, John Mark. He was one of the companions of Paul on his first missionary journey. He was a nephew of Barnabas. And you know the story. They went to the island of Cyprus and things were going well. And Mark was there, a young missionary and minister. 
Things got rough and Mark deserted and he left, he went back home and Paul had a hard time accepting that. As a matter of fact, when they started their second missionary journey, Bartimaeus said, let's take Mark with us. And Paul said, not on your life, brother. We're not taking that traitor, that deserter. We're not going to take him. He's immature. He can't be trusted, can't count on Mark. And it even caused a split between Paul and Barnabas. But now he says, I want you to go get Mark and bring him. Loneliness has a way of making us aware of the significance of others. When Paul was feeling like a winner, he didn't have any use for Mark. But I tell you what, people who have suffered are people who have become tolerant. Intolerant people have never suffered. People who are quick to write somebody off as a loser and a bad cause and a bad debt have never suffered loneliness. I had a college student tell me, she said, Pastor, more than one. He said, in a lonely dormitory room, I'd be sitting there and I'd be so homesick, I thought I'd vomit. <laughs> you ever felt that way? I have. I've been so homesick and so lonely. And I begin to think about mother and daddy. He said, when I was a kid, you know, in high school, I thought they were the dumbest, the, uh, the, the narrowest, the biggest bigots that I'd ever known. And I'd be sitting there in that dormitory room and I'd think about mother and daddy and all of a sudden they look so differently to me. And I've had them tell me, say, I had a snotty-nosed brother that I couldn't stand back at home. He's always getting in my stuff and, and rummaging around in my room and I just almost hated him and I'd get off in college and I'd get to missing him so badly I'd just die. And all of a sudden my brother just looks so great. Sound like anybody you know? I've noticed this. And when you get lonely, folks start looking a lot better, don't they? <laughs> yeah, you'd like to have old Mark sometime when you get lonely enough. They help us become aware of the significance of others. Secondly, loneliness forces us to turn our concerns totally over to God. There's reality in that, that song, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Oh, we sing that glibly. "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, amen, when's the sermon over?" There's reality in that verse, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, and to know, thus saith the Lord." Amen. That's it. There's reality in that. So if you look in verse 14, he said, Alexander did me dirty, but I'm not going to carry that grudge any longer. I'm going to turn that over to God. That's what loneliness does to you. While we're talking about classified ads, a classified ad appeared in, the Dow in a Chicago newspaper that said, if blank, put the guy's name in there, if blank who deserted his wife 21 years ago and six-month-old son will come to this address that aforementioned six-month-old son will knock his block off. Well, there was a 21-year-old guy who had a grudge against the father who left him when he was six months old, carried that for 21 years. There's some of us who are doing, making the same mistake. We have all these grudges. And Paul said, Alexander did me dirty, but I'm not going to carry that resentment. I'm going to leave that to God, and God will take care of it. He'll pay the price, and he'll make his payment to God. 
And then he says in verse 18, the Lord will take care of me. He's not only going to take care of my enemies and the people who give me problems, He's going to take care of me. And He's going to lead me to the home that He has prepared for me in heaven. And that, my friend, is bottom line theology. And I don't care if you get so lonely you're going to die. If you understand that kind of theology, if you have that kind of understanding about God, then you've come to the right place. Now, I've got to hurry. How do you control loneliness? Now, you notice I didn't say how do you cure it. You don't cure it. I didn't say how do you get rid of it. You don't. It's like a root that's never extracted. But how do you control it? There are four ways, and they're right here in the text. Number one, invest in time. Invest in time with intimate friends. Did you notice in verses 9 and 11 that the Apostle Paul chose his friends? There's Timothy. I want you to hurry and come, Timothy, before wintertime comes. And there's Luke, Dr. Luke, who is with me now. And then he says, I want you to bring Mark. He had three intimate friends he wanted to see. Now there's a difference between acquaintances and friends. There's a difference between people that you know and intimate friends. An intimate friend is a person that you can bear your heart with. Straight says that what lonely people need is not a pill or suicide. They need a friend with whom they can share their dreads or dreams. That's what you need. Did you notice, I, have you ever noticed that there is, the, have you ever noticed the first negative in the Bible? Just read Genesis chapter 1 and it says, and God created this and it was good, and God created that and it was good, and God created man and it was very good, and then there's that first negative, and he saw that it was not good. What? For man to be alone. I tell you, God the Father can't stand for you to be alone. And so in this world, He has created a friend, intimate friends. Invest your life with intimate friends. Number two, take care of bodily needs. Look at verse 13. Lonely people have a tendency to neglect themselves, don't they? Don't we? Lonely people have a tendency to neglect their appearance and their diet. I've noticed that. Lonely people have a tendency to so slump they give up and they don't care how they look or what they eat. They're just so lonely. What difference does it make? And so the Apostle Paul says, bring my cloak, Timothy, when you come. The summer is waning and diminishing in Rome and it's going to be cold before long. And it's damp in here, and I could, get a, I could catch a death of cold. I could get pneumonia. And the illness debilitates and hinders. Timothy, bring my cloak. I want to take care of my body. Alexander McLaren has a marvelous sermon on this called Come Before Winter. And old McLaren said, Paul was saying to Timothy, bring my cloak. Said McLaren, it had been wet with the brine of the Mediterranean and white with the snows of Galatia and yellow with the dust of the Ignatian way and crimson with his own blood. That was the cloak he wanted to keep him warm. And if you neglect yourself, it isn't long until you're unattractive and distasteful. Take care of bodily needs. Number three, 
Strengthen your mind with good books. And so he said to Timothy, When you come, bring my books. My mother's 80 years old. She's totally blind in one eye, irreversible blindness, and she's senile. Other than that, she's pretty good shape. And I go to see her. She has an insatiable appetite for reading. She has this marvelous library. And she's given away and thrown away and, and, and books that, that I'd probably fill my library. She's a member of a book club, and she reads a book or two a week. More than that, she reads a book every one or two days. And I go to talk to her and visit with her. She'll say, you know, I don't get lonely. I've got my books. Tyndale was prison, in prison 15 centuries before the Apostle Paul. And he wrote a letter much like Paul did to Timothy. He said, bring my warm cap and a candle. Bring some patches for my leggings. And bring my Hebrew lexicon and my Hebrew Bible. Hebrew lexicon. Greg Idell was telling me the other day, he said, man, I'm having trouble with my Hebrew. So did I. Took it two years in the seminary. Gagged on it every day. Hebrew dictionary, Hebrew lexicon, Hebrew Bible. Why would a guy want that in prison? He wanted it because with that marvelous book, he could leave that dungeon in his mind. And he stretched his mind away from loneliness by reading the books. And John Wesley traveled 225,000 miles in his ministry on horseback. Folks, 225,000 miles if he'd travel that way by air, American Airlines, give him free trip to Hawaii and back. 225,000 miles he traveled on horseback, and you and I can't ride a mile in an air-conditioned cushioned car to church. And while he would ride on that horse, he had books leaned up against the saddle horn uh, on the horse. And big books, deep books, he studied medicine and history and science. And he read thousands of volumes as he would travel on horseback 50 to 90 miles a day. You know how to escape loneliness? By getting in some books and stretching your mind, finally. And the most important of all, by getting into the Scriptures. And the Apostle Paul said, when you come to Rome, bring my cloak, bring my books, but, now this is, this is the priority, said, but most of all, bring my Bible, bring the parchments, bring the Scriptures. Now I can shiver in the cold without my cloak, and I can somehow make it without my books. I'll talk to some of these Romans about Roman history. But I can't get along without the Scriptures. Can't you see the Apostle Paul just bent over, pouring over the Scriptures? Until he found some word from God for his loneliness. Until he found some word from God concerning the future. And so my old mom would say, you know, I said, Gerald, I'm not lonely. I've got my books. And I read my Bible every day. She's no saint. I can tell you a lot about her. She loved my sister better than she liked me. She couldn't be all good. Uh, but, but she had some books. And she had the Bible. And that's enough. You see, you know, when... When, when, when you get into the Scripture, you, you not only find a companion, 
you not only feel the pulse of God, you can, you can feel His warm breath, and you can feel His pulse and His heartbeat, and you can feel the companionship of God in the Scripture. Not only that, but you find that encouragement that says, hey, you can make it. You can go on. You can live. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we've come to this moment that's called invitation, the awareness that some of us can identify with this great man of God who lived thousands of years ago. Some of us, Father, have struggled in this life with so many needs and so many problems. We've sought answers and so many solutions and so resources. We come to be aware this morning that you have the answer to every need that we have in life. So we look to you, Father, as the answer to that need, whatever it be. We trust you. We love you. Commit our life to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now we have three invitations. First invitation is for you to come and give your life to Christ. You say, well, the gospel hasn't been presented. I can do it in 30 seconds. The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth, the word of faith which we believe. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's as close as your breath to be saved. If you say with your mouth, I believe Jesus is the living Savior, and I accept him as the Lord of my life, I commit to him as my boss and master. You'll be saved. We ask you to come this morning give your heart and life to Christ. We ask you to come, secondly, to place your life in the fellowship of the church. There's something exciting about our church, something fresh and vital that we sense. We want you to come and place your life here if God is leading you to do that. Don't wait another day. Don't wait till next month, next week, next semester. Come on and put, it, put your life here with us now. The invitation then finally is for you to come and say, there's so many needs I have. I've lived so far away from God. I'm not serving and following Him. I want to walk close to the Lord. I want to commit my life to Him in rededication of life. Has God spoken to your heart? Then the first thing you need to do on the first word is come right down this aisle to Christ. Let's do it while we stand. Choir sings.